0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Film Detectives, episode 19, Elliot, right? Yes, 19. We are one away from the big 2-0. Can't believe it's been 20, almost 20 episodes now. But ladies and gentlemen, we have another fantastic guest here today, a writer for everything sci-fi pretty much a lot of people know him as mr sci-fi the writer producer director and creator of space command mark scott Zickry, welcome to the show thank
1: you so much for being here welcome to the show mark
2: thank you thanks for having me guys glad to be here
1: definitely thank you for being here so to get started mark uh let's talk a little bit about how you got into the science fiction genre and what were some major influences as a child, that really drew you to the genre of science
2: fiction? You bet. Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been a science fiction fan as far back as I can remember. And uh, as a kid, I was reading science fiction voraciously. This is back when uh, elementary school libraries would have all the Heinlein juveniles. They, the, Robert Heinlein, throughout the 50s, would write an, one adult novel novel per year and one, one, what would be now called YA novel, you know, a young adult novel. Uh, things like How Spaceship space Will Travel, uh, Citizen of the Galaxy, Farmer in the Sky. And those would be in all the school libraries uh, uh, across America. So uh, it was a great way of, you know, um, uh, publicizing himself to a younger audience that would then grow up to into adults. And um, so I was I was reading a lot of science fiction. My mom would take me to a, to used bookstores where you could buy science fiction paperbacks, uh, used science fiction paperbacks for like a dime a piece. And um, and I was also reading comics and watching TV and going to movies. So. Uh, when I was 10, uh, Star Trek debuted, and that and the original Twilight Zone and the original Outer Limits really um, made me who I am today. Uh, I started noticing that the same writers were writing for all three shows and also writing the books that I was reading, Uh, guys like Ray Bradbury and uh, Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont and George Clayton Johnson and Harlan Ellison and so forth, Mm -hmm. and so uh, as soon as I was old enough, I started going to science fiction conventions when i was a teenager and meeting these people and they started uh to become mentors and friends and um but when i was 18 uh i wrote a radio play called lobotomy that was a satire of science fiction conventions and um science fiction movies and tv shows and writers and that aired on kpfk here in los angeles and then the next year i went to the clarion clarion writers workshop which is the leading science fiction writing workshop in the country and sold my first short story through that um, to Damon Knight, the writer who wrote the short story to t- to serve man, that was turned into the Great Twilights an episode of that name. And um, when I when I graduated college, there were no classes on how to write or produce television. There was no way to um, and I knew that the writers ran television. Uh, the showrunners were almost invariably writers. Uh, Rod Serling really kind of set that as the mold. and um, so I thought, well, how do I learn? I knew I wanted to be a writer, producer in TV. How do I learn how to do that? And uh, I thought, well, if I research one of the greatest TV shows ever made, this was only two years after Serling's death, um, uh, that way I'll, I'll sort of learn how to do this job. And then a friend of mine brought me into television when I was 22 uh, in animation, and that's how I ended up writing for Smurfs and He-Man mm-hmm. and Super Friends and, oh, okay. and Ghostbusters and all those. And then Gotcha. I made the, yeah, and then I made the jump over to live action with, um, I developed a show called Captain Power which was a live-action uh, science fiction show aimed at kids, and uh, and then started writing for things like Babylon 5 and Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine, and Sliders, and on and on. So uh, that's, yeah, and that's, and therein hangs a tale, yes basically
1: all the defining sci-fi tv shows i grew up with and i'm sure trevor grew up with as well because you know for me star trek next generation voyager deep space nine um you actually wrote one of my favorite deep space nine show uh episodes um far beyond the stars Mm -hmm. uh which cisco play uh is it's told from two different time periods uh 1950s uh sci-fi writer um uh, and yeah. Avery Brooks plays a 1950s sci-fi writer and then is dreaming uh or going back and forth yeah. between uh Deep Space Nine's time period and the 1950s and yeah. you gotta you really like that's one of my favorite episodes <laughs> it
2: well, yeah, was just it was great because
1: it had so many multiple layers of what yeah. is reality
2: yes and also that that stemmed from the fact that you know, as I say, the writers, I was reading the science fiction writers of the 50s when I was growing up in the 60s and mm-hmm. 70s, and so, and when I got to know Theodore Sturgeon, uh, he was a great writer of that period, and um, and he was living this little impoverished life, and I realized that those guys, there wouldn't be a Star Trek or a Star Wars or any of that stuff if not for those guys who wrote for a penny a word or five cents a word back in yeah. the 30s through the 50s, and yep. I wanted to show that world. I wanted to show why science fiction was important, and that mm-hmm. we, we can create a future by first envisioning a future that, that's persuasive. You know, sometimes I tell people, you know, when Martin Luther King said, I see a future where the, the descendants of slave owners and the descendants of slaves sit together at, at the table of freedom. Um, he was telling a science fiction story. He was saying, I have a vision of a future that does not right. yet exist, but could exist, exist if we make it so. And right. um, And so, you know, so science fiction, I think, has an incredible power. And uh, and so I, I I really am glad that I was part of that era and I'm continuing to be part of science fiction today, you know, so it's it's really great content. Yeah,
0: and that actually brought up a great point where you were saying there is, I was watching one of your interviews in regards to Space Command, and we'll touch on Space Command uh, quite a lot, of course, right. in an in interview, but <laughs> you were <laughs> saying that you wanted to create it because you wanted like the power of compassion is mm. something that you mentioned. You wanted yeah. to have a show that basically everyone could coexist in one area and and agree on things which yeah. is what you're kind of saying there you wanted that future where there is not that conflict and that you know kind of what we're going through right now currently in the world
2: yes yeah. well, i think well let's jump in on that i mean i think it's not so much that they don't they don't they, they don't disagree i think that's a that's a um here's here's basically what it is I lo- i love science fiction i love the hopeful um vision of the future that science fiction can present Uh, you know people forget that the original star trek was during the vietnam war it was during the riots in the streets cities were burning but nevertheless gene roddenberry could say we can create a better future if we just reach across boundaries and barriers and come together with compassion and and courage and so so for me it's not so much that we all have to agree. I, I welcome, like, for instance, with Mr. Sci-Fi or any of the things I do, you know, I'm politically very liberal, as is my wife, but I welcome conservatives uh, to be fans of my work and, and 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 in communication with me, as long as we're all compassionate, as long as we say this is a world of inclusion, not exclusion, you know? Yeah, and, and I yeah,
1: respect your ideas, and, yeah, you know, we— Just need to get along.
2: (laughs) That's right, and and but it's even more than that. It's sort of like we can be a community. We can be supportive of each other. We can be there for each other when it really matters. We have to care about each other and recognize that humanity is the one race, you know, and that's really all that matters. Now, again, that might sound mm, Pollyannish, but it's not. It's realistic because the the only counterbalance uh, and counterweight against uh, chaos and and destruction and suffering is compassion and 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 empathy. You know, we have to understand that violence stops when we decide to stop it. And the way you stop violence is not with, with um equal violence. No, not more violence, yeah. Right. right. You stop it with compassion. It, very interestingly, we're doing a project, my wife and I now, we were brought aboard to do a project about the life of a political activist uh named uh Lord Peter hayne He's in the House of Lords in England, but he and his family were anti-apartheid activists. And then he went on to be a world peace activist and was instrumental in the peace accords in Ireland and so forth. And at one point I said, well, Peter, when you have people sitting at a table who are violently uh, opposed to each other, how do you get them, how do you even start on a process towards peace? And he said, well, you you engage them as human beings. You start talking about something totally not connected to the issue at hand. So it could be if they're um, football fans. (laughs) They're talking about football. And then they start recognizing... That something they love is something you love, and there's a connection made. And then when you start to see each other as people, then you can start to uh, get somewhere, you know. And Finding I thought, common ground, yes, basically. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, and so I think that these times are times that um, messages of compassion, mes- mes- messages of kindness, mes- messages of hope are very important. And so a few years ago, I noticed that a lot of the science fiction shows on the air and the science fiction movies in theaters. Remember remember theaters, guys? Uh, what of those? Uh, were, it's been a while. Um, a lot of them were very dark and very nihilistic and very dis- uh, dystopic. And um, and much as I liked things like you know uh, Battlestar Galactic and so forth, I thought that there was something missing, which was the message of hope that I saw in the Twilight Zone and that I saw in the original Star Trek and in Star Trek The Next Generation. And so I wanted to create something that could equal, that could, that could have a message similar to that, but in the modern day. And so that's what space command is. Yeah.
1: It's just, yeah. The legacy of that compassion and hope that Serling and and Roddenberry started. Yeah. It, I I definitely see all the influences in space command. And that's a great transition into space command because you crowdfunded this project uh, and are continuing, continuing to do so. And it's, basically your homage to the science fiction genre because i see a lot of elements of babylon five of you know star trek and of you know all the all basically all the great shows of sci-fi that really came out during the 80s that well actually all the way back to the 50s and 60s and then through to now and, and so it's also,
2: and it's so fun to have my own science fiction channel on youtube where i can yeah.
1: talk about the history Mystery of sci-fi right
2: yeah, feel, <laughs> and geek out you know <laughs> I, love science, I love science fiction because not only is it a wonderful genre of literature, but also they have science fiction conventions where you can go and meet your heroes. So I was able to meet, meet Ray Bradbury and Harlan Ellis and all these people that I thought were 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 geniuses. And they and as I say, many of them became friends. And I feel part of a tradition. I very much do. And um, and it's not. And again, it doesn't mean that you just look backwards. You have to look ahead as well. You have to look forwards, yeah. and you have to be solidly rooted in the moment you're in. Because if science fiction is empty of any meaning, it's not serving uh, its highest purpose for the audience. The first, the first obligation of anything that you write is that it should entertain.
1: Mm-hmm, but you know,
2: right. once it entertains, it can have a, a much greater, um, it can carry a freight with it of meaning. And it can actually, I, I, I believe it can change the world. I know it can. Um, Twilight Zone had an enormous effect. Star Trek, God, Star Trek has had a huge effect, you know. Um, and it's so, still uh, having
0: an effect with what yeah, they're doing now.
2: Yeah, but to talk about Space Command, um, I run this roundtable that I've run for 28 years of writers, directors, actors, producers. It's just to create a compassionate community in Hollywood and around the world in the entertainment industry, and it's thousands of members all over the place. And through that, I started hearing about crowdfunding, and I'd never raised money ever because I'd worked for all the major studios and networks and they, you know, like when I produced sliders, I didn't have to raise the money. The universal gave us $42 million and (laughs) went, you know, so, but with space command, I didn't want to take the risk. I have many friends who are showrunners and they would say, well, let's walk this in, let's get a pilot deal. But I knew that it could get cut off at script. It could get caught up, cut off at pilot or the notes could be crazy and stupid and we'd have to listen to them, you know, put a, put a a funny robot in it or whatever. And, you know, and so, I thought, well, I've never raised money. Let me see if I can try. And our first target, our first campaign with Kickstarter, the target was $75,000 to raise in two months, and we raised that in three days. Mm-hmm. And we kept going, and we came out at 20, yeah. $221,000 in the two-month period. And since then, wow. yeah, and That's since then, amazing. now we just started a new Kickstarter campaign, but in the in the intervening time between that and selling investment shares for $7,500 uh, in Space Command, I've raised over two million dollars and uh, that's allowed me to open a studio. So far, we've recorded seven hours of Space Command. We have we have another seven hours Excellent. to shoot mm-hmm. and, um, and that'll be the first season. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's been, a, and then also beyond that, I'm creating something called the Showrunners Network where I'm creating um, six series with six of my friends, uh, you know, who created, I mean, my friends, you know, created, they're the creators of such shows as Farscape, Defiance, uh, the Ants, Alien Nations, <laughs> you know, Sequest, uh, on and on. I mean, wow. you know, so it's like, um, I thought it'd be really fun to, to just kind of rock and roll. And and I also reached out to actors who are friends uh, from so many shows I've worked on and love. So even on Space Command, we have Doug Jones, Mira Furlan, whom we lost recently from Babylon 5, uh, Bruce Boxleitner, Billy Moomy, mm-hmm. um, um Robert Picardo, um, Christina Moses from A Million Little Things, Ron Tahir, uh, who who is in JJ Star Trek movie and Iron Man, we have um, James Hong from Blade Runner and Big Trouble in Little China, um, on and on. You know, it just keeps going. Barbara Bain from Space nineteen ninety nine, uh, and on and on. You know, it... it's basically the legacy of sci fi. <laughs> yes, but this comes from knowing the traditions. And mm-hmm. and again, if I, I I mentioned to my cast that if I went to a network and and wanted that cast approved, they wouldn't know who those people were, and they would say no. They'd say put mm-hmm. in. This kid from the CW who can't act, yeah, you know, or, or whatever. Not to, not to, you know, right. just the the CW, but but it's sort of like, I've worked with a lot of great executives at the networks and studios, and a lot of them have been very smart, and I have not butted heads. Very, I, it's very rare that I meet a, a a dumb executive. But on the other hand, I don't want to take that risk, and and when you have total power over something, it's rather lovely.
1: Yeah. So. Because then it becomes it's your your, baby, yeah. your child in a way.
2: Well, my, yeah, my, my it's wife your baby. and I <laughs> write and direct and produce together, and I'm sure of the lead dog on Space Command, uh, and then there are projects of hers where she's the lead dog. But um, but but we <laughs> uh, it's lovely because we write we write it, we cast it, we shoot it, you know, we edit it. Mm-hmm. It's it's exactly what it's we have all to write yours. We yeah, it's all yeah. inclusive. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. it's funny because my team, you know, because I have a number of people in, working in my studio now, um, you know, I'll come up with some crazy notion and, and their eyes will get big and they'll be, look, you know, shaking their heads. And then I just, you know, um, we, bandit, we find a way to pull it off. So, for instance, in the first two hours of Space Command in the pilot, there's uh, 1,800 visual effects shots. That's mm-hmm. insane. I mean, yeah, it's not a, lot. <laughs> a movie wouldn't have yeah. that many. Fact, they do yeah. they look great. yeah, it they takes, look push enormous determination. and uh, but yes. and but again, I'm very cognizant that that the visual effects have to be solid, but the characters are what what has to work most of mm-hmm. all. You have mm-hmm. to care about these people. If you don't care about the right. people, then it doesn't matter how good it looks. you know, it, you, you, you it has to have a story that compels and people that you want to take the journey with. so i'm I'm very lucky. Very, very yeah,
0: well, well, speaking of speaking of the characters, I know you shot a two-hour like at-home special type thing called Ripple Effect, and I wanted to touch on that because I wanted to see, you know, with COVID and everything going on, how was that process of everyone basically shooting things from home and then putting it all together to create it Ripple was,
2: Effect? It was super fun. It was super fun. Here's, here's why I did it, two re- several reasons. Now, we had just completed shooting a scene with Nichelle Nichols uh, of Star Trek, whom I'd met first when I was 10 when Star Trek was on the air. And, wow, and i got wow. to get a, a visit of the set of star trek it was amazing the original show sit in the captain's chair all that stuff and um <laughs> sort of so sort of, sort of come full circle 50 years later and be able to uh you know uh, have her in space command was a dream come true so we just shot that mm-hmm. scene but hadn't put it in the in an episode yet it was like in waiting in the wings and then i was calling my friends you know who were actors uh and they were all stuck at home bored out of their minds you know like christina moses and Barbara Bain and Bob Picardo and so forth. And whereas normally these people, it's difficult to schedule their, them for a shoot, they were all there. And I thought, well, G, well, well, gee, there. You know, I said, you want to, you want to play? And initially, Elaine and I thought, well, it'll be maybe just a vignette, maybe ten minutes. Then it grew to twenty. Then it grew to an hour. Then it grew to two hours because there was just so much. Because also, we laid out the entire first season of Space Command, and there were many actors whose care I knew what characters they were going to play, but they hadn't come into the. The show that we've released yet so for instance i knew armin Schumann was going to play christina moses's father uh, you know armin from ds9 and buffy and ethan phillips was another character who was, would be later in the show and barbara bain and so forth and so I, we just started writing scenes and then it became a very fun game of how do we pull this off and and it, so we brought our whole array Visual effects to it, and I knew it would be rougher around the edges than a standard episode of Space Grant. It wouldn't mm-hmm. have the same polish, but because everyone in the world was in the same boat with this pandemic, I thought, let's just do it as as sort of a fun experiment, you know. And and if it works, great. If it doesn't yeah. work, you know, it doesn't matter. It's it was like I did it with Elaine, and I both did it with a great feeling of just creativity, you know, mm-hmm. without without any fear. Right. And um, and it was great fun, and it came out great. And and we were shooting, our actors were shooting scenes in here in L.A. and in New York and in up, upstate New York as well, in Saskatchewan, in Portugal, in the wow. U.K., in Atlanta, right? And one scene, we cast Brian McClure, who plays Lieutenant Bradbury. He shot his half of the scene in Atlanta, and we cast an actress to play his daughter, and she was in Saskatchewan, and we digitally put them both in the same room, you know, in a living room like that. And uh wow. and and so and we also got yeah. Francois Chow from the Expanse. He was uh he was great. And um, you know, every, no one said no. No one said no. They were all up for the for the for the experience. And um and, and I said the to adventure. them, I said to them, look, we're <laughs> gonna release this just free of charge. This is our gift to the audience, you know. Mm-hmm. And they all said absolutely. And mm-hmm. so everyone donated their services. And uh and from when I f- I first came up with the idea to when we released the two-hour episode was two months. So that's an astonishingly quick time. For, yeah. You know, it's a quick turnaround, yeah. yeah. yeah, Fast, yeah. And, fast but, turnaround. And, yet, <laughs> and I put it on Mr. Sci-Fi, so one can go to my YouTube channel and watch the entire thing. And, um, and it was very funny because I thought, okay, let's we're introducing some of the characters as well. So I thought at the beginning, I had each actor against a white wall, just looking dead into camera, talking about the character they play. And so you see the actors all talking about their characters, and then it becomes one screen with all of them in little boxes saying, got that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, saw I saw that, yeah.
2: Yeah, and it was really fun. Yep. And again, the whole issue, although some scenes were comedic and some scenes were um, very dramatic, uh, there was a great spirit of play, playfulness. And, and one, the other thing that was really, mm-hmm. really fun is that normally you would never, ever, ever write a monologue for an actor. It's very rare you write a monologue. Uh, yeah. simply because, you know, you're shooting dialogue, you're shooting scenes. But with this, because, again, it was the pandemic, we could give actors monologues. Yeah. And uh, so some scenes we had monologues. Some scenes we had two actors talking to each other. Some scenes we had even more actors talking to each other. Um, some scenes it would be a reporter interviewing a character. We got Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, in, as well. saw that. That's yeah. wild. I, I saw yeah. That. yeah, and again, it was like, and the funny part of that was that... Um, I, I go to this gym here in L.A. We've had Elaine and I have had the same trainer for 30 years and uh, he looks great. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but one day I was there and Neil deGrasse Tyson was visiting from out of town and he was working out at my gym. So I said, listen, um, I said, yeah, oh, I really? said, I said, listen, because I was thinking of a problem in something I was writing for Space Command. I said, listen, if someone wanted to go out into space and bring something back that could turn global warming around, what would it be? And he said, "Huh, that's an interesting question." He said, "Are you going to be here Monday?" Uh, I said, "Yeah." This was like on a Thursday, I think, or a Friday, and or Saturday. And uh, and so I came back on Monday, and I was running on the treadmill. And he got up on the next treadmill, and he explained the solution he'd come up with. It took a half hour to explain it, and uh, and then I wrote it down as soon as I was finished with my run. But I kept in touch. I kept in touch with him, and uh, and I worked him into the into the role because we did a we did an audio play that was a prequel. So initially, I was thinking well, he'll be in the audio play, right? But then when we when we incorporated that into Ripple Effect, I knew it was going to be a visual. We went, He sent us video. And so um, so then I had to say, well, okay, this is taking place 30 years from now. How do I uh, explain that he looks the same? And then I, so we came up with the newscast being sponsored by something like, like Regena Youth or something, where it starts with a baby morph. It starts with an old man morphing into a baby. And then and the guests, Tyson yeah. says, you know, and I'm a customer, you know.
0: Yeah, there you go. That's you how know? you get around with it. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Customer and, uh, <laughs> but again, everyone kind of really, really oh, got gosh. with it. And um, and it was, it was just fun. But, you know, it's sort of like I, I did it partially to prove to everyone that the pandemic didn't mean you had to stop. It, it, it was clever. If you were creative, you could find ways to still – create work and get it to your audience because everyone is undergoing that experience and uh, and i also knew i didn't want it to be about the pandemic directly but i did want it to be about how we're all in this together you know and so um you know so that was and that's what happened and sadly of course our our dear friend mira furland died from west nile virus we didn't know that would happen but that was her last appearance i think in anything uh when when she did that that episode and uh you know and every moment that we were able to record her character in space command is a blessing of course. I also worked with her in Bath five, you know, as well. So, yeah.
1: It's interesting too, because she also was uh, a teacher at New York film Academy too. And I actually bumped into her several times and she was was the sweetest woman ever. And, and just really just very giving. And just a very nice lady to be around and stuff. It was a shock. The irony of
2: course is that it wasn't COVID. She was staying hunkered down in her place in the Hollywood Hills and a mosquito bit her and gave her West Nile and, how was that? And uh, but but again, all of us are so lucky who work in film and television, books that the work that we do lives after us, lives beyond us. And so we all of us know that. And there's something very, I won't say reassuring, but something very comforting to know that um, our work has reached people and will continue to do so. So I'm so we're dedicating the, the first two hours of Space Command to Mira. And so the first thing that you'll see in the episode is for Mira Ferlin against a black screen. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: speaking of books and things, uh, this is a, a question I've been really because you mentioned Doug Jones, and yes. I've I've had the very fortunate opportunity to meet Doug and know Doug, <laughs> which is incredible. But I know that you co-wrote Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Yes. Is is that how you met Doug, or is, how did you how did that happen? How did you meet Guillermo? How did you how did you meet Doug? I'm
2: just curious personally. <laughs> I I just finished a new book called Greenlighting Yourself which is going to come out as soon as I mail it to my publisher or, or email it. You know, uh, uh-huh. I, just, I just finished the first draft of it and, um, it, and I talk in that book. It's about how you can basically do all the stuff that I've been doing. And I say, you know, decide who you want to be mentored by. And, mm. and one of the people on my list was Guillermo del Toro. And so when I was at Comic-Con some years ago, I introduced myself to him. I ran into him, and I introduced myself. And he, of course, had read The Twilight Zone Companion, as has almost everyone who's interested in the genre. And I told him how much I liked his work. And then a couple of years later, we ran into each other again at Comic-Con. So, we, so he knew who I was. He knew uh-huh. what I, how I came across. And then um, uh, when I, I did a, something called World, World Enough in Time, it was a um, Star Trek New Voyages episode with George Takei and Christina Moses that I co-wrote. And directed and executive produced and it was nominated for the hugo and the nebula which are the two top awards in science fiction and that was the same year that guillermo was nominated for pan's labyrinth and for those awards mm. we were both on the, oh. the same list okay and at, the, at that time he was, he'd, he'd done, he had agreed to do Guillermo Del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, but he hadn't chosen a co-writer. And my friend Ian McCaig, Ian McCaig designed Darth Maul and Queen Amidala. He was doing a book of artwork for the same publisher. And he said, Well, how about Mark Zickri? So they floated my name to Guillermo, and he said, That sounds good. Let's have a meeting to see if you know if the chemistry is right. So he and I got together and uh, and I said, what I want this book to be like is uh, Hitchcock Truffaut, the, the great book where Francois Truffaut in, you know, interviewed Hitchcock about his entire body of work. And it's funny because the publisher was going, no, 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 no. And Guillermo <laughs> and I were going, yeah, that sounds great. And, uh, and so then Let's do the it. difficult part was that Guillermo was so busy. It took, it took about five years to have enough of the interview meetings sporadically that that I could, I, we could then put the book together. but um, But the great part was that we got along – like a house of fire it was terrific and uh so we met both at bleak house here in you know in 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 la and uh his, his you know and uh and also up in toronto when he was shooting uh, pacific rim and um and uh and it went great now then the way doug came into all of this was that around the same time i was producing the twilight zone blu-ray set and doing like 52 commentaries on that and i won the Saturn Awards, so I was invited to come to the Saturn Awards, and I noticed this tall, thin guy wearing this incredible Victorian coat, so I went up to compliment him on the coat, and it turned out he was Doug Jones. I, <laughs> I said, well, I'm writing, yeah, I said, I'm writing a book Excellent. with Guillermo, and, you know, because Doug has played all these different creatures oh, in those yeah. movies, and um, and I said, well, let me take you to lunch in a few days, so we we had lunch, and he has this great, sensitive face that you almost never see, because he's always playing creatures, and, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> and I thought, boy, I thought, and I said to him, I said, I'm going to write a role for you, and, I, and you won't, your face won't be covered. We'll get to see what you look like. And so I came up with the role of Dora Nevin right. specifically for Doug, and, uh, and we shot it. It was that simple, and, and he's been aboard on Space Command ever since, and uh, he's a That's dear so cool. soul. He's, a, he's one of a kind. Oh, he's incredible. Yes, absolutely yes. incredible
1: and a little bit about the design of his his uh kind of head design it, it reminded yes. me of metropolis the uh yes. the robot in metropolis so it had that very like art deco like and it like because uh yes. doug's just got such a wonderfully yes. well, sculpted our, head <laughs> well,
2: actually, <our laughs> and you our, know <laughs> our character designers um as i said is ian McCagan. i've known ian for 25 years uh, he's been my character designer on pretty much all of my major projects and so and he, of course, as I said, designed Darth Maul and Queen Amadella and Rey and The Force Awakens. And he's worked on yeah. pretty much every major science fiction film or fantasy film, Harry Potter and on and on. He's just a brilliant artist. Wow. And uh, he, designed, he designed that look mm-hmm. for Doug. And it wasn't a helmet at the point. It was like Doug would have like a bald head. And with this this, this gizmo there, mm. and but the bald cap proved a little bit challenging for how quickly we were going to be shooting. So then uh-huh. it was like altered to be a helmet, but right. it still followed the line of what Ian had designed. Mm. And and of course Ian also had the idea of removing Doug's eyebrows to again just have those eyes really yeah. pop. piercing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, but it was just just terrific. And with that tall thin frame, um, our costumer was able to create these wonderful. Um, you no know, black outfits for Doug, mm-hmm. and uh, and I gave him one of the coats was he he really loved, and I gave it to him as a present. So Aww. I said the Aww. one thing is if we need to have you back shooting in it, please. He's got the,
1: it's got the has yeah. yeah, got the the costume right prayer. there Bring it with you. Bring it with I, you. I
2: was in agreement, but um, but he's been terrific. He's been absolutely terrific, and uh yeah. So I'm I I would work again with him in a second, and and I'm and I will be. I'm I'm sure. So Definitely. yeah. That's
0: awesome. Cool. That's super cool to hear. I was, I was wondering how it all connected.
2: Yes. And what, well, one, one thing that's fun is that in the Kickstarter campaign, we're running now for space command that the, the, the Uh, portfolio of drawings that Ian did, that Ian McKaig did for our characters, and spacesuits and all sorts of stuff, we offer that as one of the premiums. and Again, it's not available anywhere else because we haven't published it. It's just been something we have. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, because Ian did the the Space Command uniforms, which are really cool. That was really interesting Mm -hmm. because initially his designs looked a lot like Star Trek The Next Generation. I said, no. Mm -hmm. I said, it can't be Star Trek The Next Generation. It can't be Star Wars. It has to be something we haven't seen before. And normally I would never give that that direction to an artist because they would get lost. They would just no, not know what to do. But with Ian, he and I have such a great way of working together. I knew I could say that to him, and he would come up with something original, which he has. And so I love our Space Command uniforms because they're distinctive, and <laughs> uh, and, and it's not just Star Trek: The Next Generation or or any of that stuff, you know. Yeah, because so,
1: they're sort of militaristic, uh, at least for the actual. Uh ship crew members and such and then like it also has but it has also tactile function for and and it's believable that it would be in that world um and that and that space that you're in
2: yeah and when you talk about the history of science fiction again uh when i was looking for a design aesthetic for space command i thought i i love science fiction designs from the 50s um whether it's george powell movies or the 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 magazine or paperback book covers of ed m, m. schwiller and kelly Fries and frank frazetta you know it's his work in weird science and al williamson i mean that was such an untapped resource of great design and so for the paladin and the human the human spaceships and all that stuff i called upon that aesthetic and then with the alien ship we actually had a contest and uh a guy in Italy won the contest for the alien spaceship. Oh, and, cool. and, and for that, my guideline was that I wanted the aesthetic to be like Antonin Gaudi, who was a very <laughs> iconic and unique uh, architect uh, in Spain around the turn of the previous century. And uh, and I actually flew to Barcelona and just took copious photos of his designs to share with my artists and uh, and just say, this is what I have in mind. And so it was derived from that aesthetic. And then later, it's funny, because later... Um, I was talking to my friend Rockneil Bannon who created Farscape and he said that the ship in Farscape was also, uh, based on, on Gaudi. So it was funny that you know, great minds think alike.
0: <laughs> I-, I was going to say the cool thing is you were mentioning how a fa- basically a-, a fan, you know, created the ship that is now used in the show type of thing. Yes. Another thing that I found from one of your interviews is, you know, that you, what I love about space command is like, you say the audience is the partner. Yes. Not just, you know, in, you know, funding the the show type of way, but they're also connected to it because they are with without them, you know, the show wouldn't be what it was type of thing. Yes, that's
2: right. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, the lovely thing about the Internet and um, I mean, it's just phenomenal. You know, I I was talking to an actress that we're going to be casting who's in Moscow. We're creating a new a new character called Tatiana Strugatsky and uh and and we were talking to her just like we're talking to you, i'm talking to you guys you know yeah. it's phenomenal and we get so used to this remarkable technology but it allows us to have uh communication and collaboration with people around the world in mm-hmm. a way that was never possible before and and because i came you know almost all the science fiction writers started as science fiction fans you know, yeah. it's it's very rare that you find someone working in science fiction who didn't come up as a fan. You know, <laughs> you know. It, and um, and and that, but that was even true of people like Ray Bradbury and all those people. You know, the previous generation of of writers, and 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 you know, Rod Serling read, read amazing stories when he was a kid. You know, all of these things, and so um, you know, it's it's there's a sense of. I don't have a, first of all, I don't have any any arrogance at all toward, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm the same as my audience, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. and so if someone wants to build a ray gun or a spaceship, or we had a, we had a spacesuit competition, I'm going to have the second, the second tier of that soon, because it was so fun, because the categories in that were, um, uh, steampunk you could make a steampunk one you could make a scientifically accurate one you could make one that was built for a hundred bucks or less from parts oh. entirely from home depot or lowe's <laughs> you know? oh, wow I mean, it was like it was different categories and but the thing was we own the spacesuits you know you said you don't send us a drawing you send us the spacesuit and then the winners you know get to you know uh, come to the set and all that stuff but and there were various tiers of prizes you know that were really really fun and but i'm going to do that contest again because Um, it's just so fun to have people, people often think that they don't have, they can't be part of the Hollywood dream, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I sort of want to dismantle that barrier, you know, because, and so we, so many of our actors that we cast are very well known as, as we've mentioned, but we've also had worldwide talent searches where anyone could audition and for a lead. And we've cast, you know, like more than 10 actors uh, from those competitions and, uh, and auditions, you know, and with, and thousands and thousands of people have auditioned uh, that way from all around the world. And, um, and I think that's just, just swell. Yeah. Cause
1: yeah. It, it basically represents a great platform to bring together just tons, copious amounts of talent from around yes. the world. And that, and the great thing today in this day and age, we have the technology to, do that and I, I that's a great way to utilize that technology because yeah. you know we, we are a social people we, we want to collaborate we want to work together we want to yeah. strive for something great and creative and, and, and express our own vision of what that future may hold and such yeah. and I think that really comes through with the show because um, yeah. it, it's a great platform for that
2: well you know the thing I love about um, the internet is that authenticity comes through? You know, mm-hmm. it's funny because when I started in television, and for the first 20 years or so of my career, it was a one-way communication. We wrote the scripts, made the shows, they were a telecast. You might get a fan letter every now and then or go to a convention and say hi to the fans, you know. But but it was basically we create, you guys observe, you know, right? But now it's a dialogue and um, very, very direct. And I like that. It's very funny because the past holds very little allure for me in terms of my own career and life. In other words, I like being here now. I like what I'm doing now. I would never go back to working for the studios and networks in the old, in the old days. I would, you know, it's easier in certain ways because you know, you get paid a fortune and all that stuff. But, but the trade-off is, I love the dialogue. I love the interaction. I love the spontaneous quality of it and and the fact that I can be in a direct dialogue with with my audience, with via Mister Sci-Fi and and all the things I'm doing. And I remember when I was w- doing one of the campaigns when I was, you know, talking about what I was doing to the you know on my channel and so forth. At that time, I was represented by the head of movies at CAA, and he said, "Oh no, you mustn't, you mustn't tell them what you're doing. You mustn't, you know." It's like, "Oh no, it's only when the thing airs." And he was he was old school, you know. Yeah. And it was like, and I had to walk a very, um, uh, real tightrope at that point because I knew that the future was arriving, where yeah, authenticity right. and transparency, where you shared your yeah. creative po- process as you're doing it, um, mm-hmm. was a plus, was an, was an asset. So, but right. again, you know, even when I was a kid, Ray Bradbury, I, I once said to Ray Bradbury, it was very funny, because uh, there was a period, uh, I'd go over to his house once a month for over 10 years, and we'd just talk about life and art and career and you name it, uh, we were very dear friends. And I said to him at one point, I said, I just figured out what business you're in. I said, it's not writer. I said, you're in the Ray Bradbury business. He said, yes, that's exactly right. And, and, and Rod Serling was in the Rod Serling business, and Gene Roddenberry was in the Gene Roddenberry business. You know, it's like, and Spielberg is in the Spielberg business. It's sort of like you're branding yourself for the kind of thing you create. And if you're doing it really well, the only way people can get that thing is to go to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and we're so, even
1: finding that out with this own with this podcast too, as well. Like Trevor and I, like we have to brand ourselves a certain way and yeah. and use social media. And the great thing is, we have social media to get to our audience and share yeah. our knowledge and you know our guest knowledge of this business. You know, because yeah. it's it's a great business, and I wouldn't be I, I wouldn't want to be in any any other business <laughs> than this one. Yeah. You know, so especially one. That allows you to be so creative and, sh- and share your art with the world.
2: Yes, but also the fun part is that um, if you're congruent, mm-hmm. in other words, what I stand for, what, what my wife and I stand for in our personal lives and in our business lives and in our art. I remember the first Ray Bradbury was the first writer I ever saw in person when I was like seven, something like that, maybe even younger he spoke at a library in cheviot hills here in los angeles and um and i didn't just sit in the front row i sat in front of the front row on the carpet a little kid because i idolized this this writer and i remember from that talk he said something that, that had a profound influence on me he said ideally your work and your life and your art should all come from the same place i was like, wow so that's what i've endeavored to do and uh so the opportunity to have my own channel where i can talk about whatever science fictional thing I want to talk about is fun and a wonderful opportunity. And, you know, we've had millions of hits and, you know, heading toward 100,000 subscribers. And, you know, and, uh, but the funny thing was that wasn't anything I planned. What what happened was that I'd started working on Space Command and I was, I was having lunch with Glenn Mazzara, who had been the showrunner on Walking Dead. And, he, you know, um, he, he'd come off the, the um, you know, other shows as well. And, um uh, he he said to me, you know so much about science fiction, you should have your own YouTube channel. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. So I uh, I checked it out and I thought, oh, this, I could do this. And, um, and I wanted to make it very simple, where I would just turn my phone on myself, you know, the camera and post it with a minimum of editing or anything. Because, I, because Space Command is such a massive task, with so much production uh, demanded of it, that I wanted something that would be the exact opposite in terms of difficulty of production. And uh, and I just post once a week, sometimes more, often more. And uh, and it's whatever the hell I want to talk about, whether it's Star Trek, or some science fiction book I'm reading, or you name it. It, it can be anything. And, and
0: the, it also gives you that connection to your audience, that human yes. connection. Yes. Because they see you, you know, as the creator, writer, you know, producer, director, but also you have this side of you like, Hey, yeah. I'm just like all of you. I love sci-fi.
2: Yes. it's And, but, and it's so funny because um, people recognize me now when I'm out in the world. And one time Elaine and I were in London uh, going to a meeting at the BBC and I came out of the uh, the subway station, you know, the tube. And someone said, Mr. Sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the space command." It's like, hi, how are you doing? You know? yeah. it was like, That's me. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, You know? But, That's awesome. um, but yeah. And so, I mean, I, you know, I'm having a great time doing all this stuff and, mm-hmm. um, and I'm very, I'm, the good part is I'm still enthusiastic about it and I'm still incredibly mm. ambitious. I mean, the fact that that space command isn't even big enough. I'm, I want to do you know, the showrunners network where I'm starting with six new shows. And then we're going to build out from that with six more and six more and six more um, is, uh, is really fun. And those are projects with, Serling material, all, all sorts of stuff. You know, I'm talking to mm-hmm. the Serling estate. I want to do a new Rod Serling show uh, that is that is derived from his unmade scripts and also mm-hmm. scripts he wrote in the live days of television that haven't been seen since. And, and he also, because he wrote scripts for Twilight Zone and Night Gallery, many other shows that never got made. And, yeah. um, but, and it would also have scripts by Matheson and Beaumont and George Clayton Johnson and, and writers now like me and Neil Gaiman and so forth. But the coolest part of it—it's called Rod Sterling's After Twilight—and uh, Rod dictated everything. After 19, from 1957 on, he dictated all of his scripts, all of his letters, speeches, everything. He would wake up in the morning, lie by his Olympic-sized pool, getting a tan, and dictate into a wire recorder, and then later a cassette recorder. And it was thought that all of these recordings were lost, and then recently they discovered a thousand hours of them. Wow. And so I want to have—so my idea is to do, have Rod narrate the show from that material. And, oh, so and then do like new, the
1: visual yeah
2: so it'd be a new show narrated by rod serling and wow. uh, and he wrote two two pilots for twilight zone that never got shot and i oh. would love to do those and so mm. um i'm talking to the serling family now and to the their representatives and we'll see if we can make that happen i'd um, love to see
1: that <laughs> i'm a huge twilight you zone too. fan and so is my dad too yeah. so like he raised me on twilight zone <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah well it's it's fun because you know um when I started writing The Twilight Zone Companion, as I said, it was two years after Serling's death. His house was still there. His wife, his, his Irish setter, everything was still exactly as he left it. And I, w- I, I would go there and uh, crawl through his attic. And you know he had these, he had these big leather scrapbooks in his attic. Uh, and, uh, and he had one room that was just for the, the trophies, the awards. So there were the six Emmys and the three Hugo Awards and the Peabody Award. And then in the back, there was a separate guest house that he had converted into an office. And it was one wall was filled with science fiction paperbacks and you'd pull them out. Many of them had never even been cracked open. And on the inside cover, every single one of them was a stamp that said property of CBS. Cause they had sent those to him when he was doing twilight zone. Oh, cool. And, uh, and in his garage were were 16 millimeter film cans of, of all of his episodes of twilight zone. And so oh, I would wow. carry home a stack like this, the masters this-
1: basically. <laughs>
2: well, they, had, it was, they had the original commercials, the original coming attraction spots, these, you know, and many of them had never even been put through a projector, and uh, and that and this was just as home video was starting. Twilight Zone had not been released on home video, and when I was working on the book, and most people didn't even have these C.R.s. It was it was very funny because at one point I was, there were three episodes that, for some reason, KTLA, which was airing Twilight Zone here in L.A., they were never there. Was three episodes they would never run, and Serling didn't have prints of them, you know, because he. He was supposed to get prints of every episode, but as the years went on on Twilight Zone, some episodes they wouldn't send him, and then some episodes he had three copies of. It was really, it was really sporadic. <laughs> okay. yeah. And so I, so I called the, the program director at, at KTLA, and I say, hey, listen, I'm doing a book on the Twilight Zone, and I just want to find out when you're um, programming uh, three episodes that I need to see. And he said, well, what are they? So I told him what they were, and he said, oh, we'll, we'll air them next week. And so, they, so all of Los Angeles got to watch those episodes because I needed to see them. <laughs> he scheduled them just so I, it's, I was assuming he'd have me, he'd let me come in and maybe watch him on a movie. or yeah, or like by
0: yourself. <laughs> no, no, we're, no we're, we'll just broadcast we, them out to all of Los exactly, Angeles.
2: Exactly. For everyone. <laughs> yeah. so that, that, was really, that was really
1: fun. Well, thank, but, you but, so. that, thank you
2: for <laughs> yeah, 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 that, Mark. Thank you. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's neat because now of course, you know, I the, with the twilight zone is on Blu-ray and DVD and you can see these astonishingly pristine copies mm-hmm. of these yeah. gorgeous episodes And, uh, I'm very proud of that. Now, one thing I'm going to do very shortly, I want to uh, to raise some money for one of my wife's features. And so I'm going to do a campaign in the near future. Uh, I I did 52 commentaries on the Twilight Zone. That leaves 104 episodes I haven't yet done the commentaries on. So I'm going to have a Kickstarter campaign where I do do the 104 that remain commentaries on all of them. And the gag will be, I think it will be about 50 bucks to get all, all 104 commentaries in audio so you can watch the episode and play the audio and but also for an extra amount uh you can get the episode dedicated to you personally your favorite episode and from for slightly more money you can get my the, your questions about e- that episode answered by me during the commentary and then the top rank will be like i think a thousand dollars and you'll get to do the commentary with me <laughs> mm-hmm. cool cool so, so that's going to be very fun yeah, yeah i just yeah, I just came up with that, but it's uh, that should be a lot of fun, you know. So we'll see. So that's in the wings. That's not uh, that's not yet. But, uh, <laughs> but now we're just doing the Kickstarter campaign, so we can finish. Uh, you know, the the uh, the episode of Space Command that's in post and roll camera on the one that we're prepping. We've built an alien spaceship set. We've, we're building two eight foot tall creatures. It's going to be really cool. Really, really cool.
1: <laughs> a lot of things on the horizon. Yeah.
2: Yes. <laughs> I think yes. the
1: biggest
0: thing, like I have picked up just talking with you, is that number one you didn't wait around for things to happen you made things happen no and the second thing is you embraced the new media that came out you didn't stay and that's why i think you're so successful at what you do because you you have embraced all that and you like like you were saying you know you made friends with all those people as you were growing up and that type of stuff it's like people come out here now to la you know my age and they're like oh i'm gonna be a star but it's all about you know networking and just Finding, yeah, all about who you know, ultimately. And I think that's so cool to hear your story of how you know you started there and you're continuing that, but you're also embracing the new media that we have today yeah. and using that to further you know your career.
2: Yes. Well, I think I, I know many, many people of my generation who get stuck in the way things used to be, and they keep talking about, well, it mm-hmm. shouldn't be this way or it shouldn't be that way. Well, it is that way. Mm-hmm. And either, you know, I mean, it, you know, like, for instance, when I started in television, You could be a freelancer, you could, I mean, for instance, when I was a producer on Sliders, we had a 22 episode order for that season and 11 of those were freelance slots. So every Mm -hmm. single day in the afternoon, we had freelance writers coming in and they had a chance to pitch something that we would buy and they would write the script and get paid for it. And then we would do, you know, page one rewrites in house because we knew the show better than they did because we were living and breathing it. But but that could be someone's first sale, you know? uh, For instance, when I was story editing Friday the 13th, the series, it was mm-hmm. the same deal. We were we were getting pitches every day, and I noticed that all the pitches were white men. And I said, let's start having people of other ethnicities. Let's start having uh, women come in. So we started getting, you know. And, and that, what I found was that the racism and the sexism weren't deeply ingrained. You just need somebody to say, let's do it differently than we've done it.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And
2: and for many people, black writers, uh, women writers, it was their first sale, and they went on to have great careers. Yeah. But and but that wasn't why I was doing it. I was doing it simply because I thought. Again, and when we talked earlier about inclusion, it's sort of like it's like everyone in the pool. You know, I mean, why on earth should should there be limitations uh, needlessly? Right. But um, but again, it was like people had an opportunity then to break in, which they don't have now because you don't have freelance in television the same way. They generally now hire the entire writing staff in one fell swoop, which is incredibly wasteful Uh uh process because usually half of those writers can't end up writing the show they don't have the voice or the skill for it and so you'll hire 20 writers and 10 of them just sit in their offices writing their spec screenplays and their spec pilots until their contracts run out and um and you're wasting millions of dollars so i don't i don't approve of that but um but with space Man, yes i i, I love the way things are done now and in fact with rock neil bannon on sweethaven the new show he and i are creating we're even talking about maybe shooting it on iPhones or something. Ridiculous. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say
0: these. Yeah. Literally, if you have one of these, you can make it. You can make a TV show. You can make yeah. a movie.
2: Well, I love the idea of a of a, uh, a, a crew that's extremely small and extremely fleet of foot and, and able to really just grab stuff. I, you know, I don't need for myself. I don't need two hundred guys. I don't need big trucks. I th- I find that stuff an encumbrance, and um, you know, I just need people who know their job to know how to do what i need done and uh, who are good at it and um so even on space command the, at most when we're shooting we might have like 80 people at most and and we have standing sets you know i don't like to do company moves i don't i, I prefer you know with, I, i'm the only writer who wrote for both babylon 5 and deep space 9 and and i liked the notion that you build your standing sets like babylon 5 they found a warehouse in the northern part of the valley. They converted it to a studio. Their VFX department was there. The, every Everyone was there, the writers, et cetera. And, um, I mean, they didn't go on location at all. All their exteriors were computer-generated. So the Teamsters didn't even find them for three years, okay, to, oh, wow. sh- to shut them down and insist on a contract. And, yeah. you know, it was <laughs> like, because they were just so, you know, and Joe jo Straczynski, who created the show, used to joke, that the executives from Warner's never came there because there were no good restaurants nearby. You know? so, <laughs> you know, but but I like that controllable. Now we have had location shoots on Space Command, but um, but again, that's you know it's as needed. You know it's uh, it's whatever. Whereas Sweet Haven, the new show, will have a lot of a lot of location moves just because of the. I mean, I'll tell you what it is. Um, and oddly, Rock and I, Rock Neil Bannon and I, came up with the idea before the pandemic. Basic idea is a, a bioengineered disease. Uh, gets out of control and kills everyone in the world under sixty, so mm. the, people 60, the people sixty and above have to figure out how to keep humanity going when they can't reproduce. Oh, so it's really Jeez. fun. And so and so Gates McFadden from Star Trek: Next Generation is in it, and Mike Harney from Orange Is the New Black and Project uh, Blue Book, and um, uh, you know Veronica Cartwright is in it, and uh, you know uh, Barbara Bain, and on and on. I mean Marta Kristen from Lost, the original Lost in Space, she played Judy. And oh, of the awesome. yeah. I mean, it's it just, you know, it's, it's an amazing ensemble cast. And, uh, and you know, James Hong is, is in it, um, mm-hmm. you know, from Blade Runner. And it's yep. just, you know, but it, it, it was, but so Rock and I outlined the script and laid out the first season of the show and beyond. And then Elaine and I, you know, wrote the, wrote the pilot script. And we just had two Zoom table reads with our cast. And then as soon as the pandemic's over, we'll, we'll shoot it. So, you know, it's fun stuff. Yeah. Uh,
1: I wanted to touch a little on your viewpoints on uh where do you see science fiction going in the next let's say 10 years like uh, as far as both movies as well as television and even literature
2: well you know it's funny because when i grew up there was something uh when i was reading uh, science fiction as a kid there was something that no one ever brought attention to which is that most of the science fiction writers were essentially writing in a shared universe of assumptions that we would land on the moon that we would build a moon base there. We would have a space station right. in orbit you know, from, from here to the moon. We would colonize Mars. We'd colonize the solar system. We would invent faster light travel, jump to the stars. They were, I mean, H- Heinlein, Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury. Everyone was writing those assumptions so that it was, so you could, and it was, and it was, a, it was a, a universe of possibilities. I mean, when 2001 came out, 1968, we all thought that that was a postcard from the future. We thought that was the future we were going to get, you know that that space station and all that stuff and um so they were all proselytizing they were a lot of those writers like Bradbury and Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke they were working hand in glove with the the space scientists at NASA with Werner Von Braun and all those guys to to talk to the American public and say well Walt Disney did these specials in the 1950s with Werner Von Braun saying here's what a trip to Mars would look like and it was basically when you think about it the idea of sending men to the moon really isn't like enough of course it's like well that's really kind of an odd idea you basically mm-hmm. uh, explode a rocket under them and you know send these guys <laughs> to the moon okay but they, but between the science fiction writers um visualizing that and then scientists going along with it and and making you know they were basically selling something to the american public which was we should go into space we should explore space and colonize it and then through the 70s, into the 80s and 90s, into the early parts of the 21st century, that vision fell out of favor, and a lot of the science fiction uh, writing turned inward, turned into a very dark, kind of pessimistic kind of thing. It was a lot of sort of navel-gazing, but now we're coming out of it again, where, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I never dreamed, I never dreamed. You know, when I was a kid, uh, Heinlein, particularly Robert Heinlein, the storyline would be, and George Powell was doing this in movies, a crazy millionaire funds a, tr- a rocket, a silver needle-nosed rocket, to go to the moon and Mars or whatever, right? Never thought I would see that in the real world because it it's crazy. And then up pops Elon Musk. And I
0: was going to say Elon, yeah, literally.
2: Exactly. exactly. Yeah. This is yep. exactly the future that was being... <laughs> all of those nineteen fifty science fiction covers had that exact kind of rocket. And um, so, I mean, so so now... I think with, with Andy Weir, The Martian, you know, and 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 a lot of the writers now they're starting to look outward again and say, Mars, we definitely have to go to Mars. We definitely have to explore the outer moons and planets. I mean, you know, so, some yeah, uh,
1: there's so much out there. Yes,
2: well, the outer moons of Saturn and Jupiter, uh, some of those moons, Europa, etc. I mean, they've got ice covering liquid oceans, liquid water okay. oceans you know, I mean, I, and there's some, there's, you know, plans to send a submarine there and drill down and, you know, it's like, and see what's in that ocean. And I think my personal belief is that life is extremely ubiquitous. I think that once we start finding life, we're going to find it all over the place. And that won't be intelligent life at first. It won't be like, you know, guys who play the saxophone or whatever, but it will be, be, you know, microbes and fish like creatures and so forth, because I, the reason the reason I believe this is because, if you look at the universe, there's nothing in the universe that only happens once, okay? Everything is replicated. I think there's multiple universes. I think bubble universes are, are you know... Yeah,
1: there's, like, multiple dimensions. Like, there's not just 23 dimensions. There's, like, probably 24
2: or more. I think, I think universes are like soap bubbles, you know? I think. But the point of it is that, that all the time I was a kid reading science fiction, it postulated—and Star Trek did this, too—it postulated that there were planets— orbiting many, many suns. But there was no proof of that in science right. until they you know, started to discover exoplanets, and now they have thousands of them logged, and it looks like almost every star has planets. And yeah. and so the same assumptions in science fiction exist about life on other planets. So I think it's just a matter of time before we find it. Uh, I don't think we're going to find, you know, aliens that look like human beings, but they've got pointed ears. I think this it's going to be, you know, like that guy. It's going to be... Um, <laughs> I think I think I think sentient alien life will be extremely different from us. But I mean, like for instance, I think an octopus is much more indicative of what what an alien sentient species might be. More like. like
1: Galaxy Quest-like aliens, yeah. basically, yeah. right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's funny because um, I, uh, uh, a project I'm doing with Mark Ferguson, Hawk Ostby, who created The Expanse, um, they uh, is called Fugitive Space, and it deals with a human. Uh, the human race interacting with a species that basically are like uh, eight-foot-tall vertical jellyfish, and they communicate via chromatophores, colored lights, and they don't oh, speak. Okay. And it's uh, it's about a prisoner exchange where we send our worst prisoners to their world because they have a methane atmosphere, and you can't break out of the prison if it's methane. And they send their worst uh, prisoners to Earth uh, because it's an oxygen atmosphere, and they can't breathe oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so the, so a prison break erupts in the, camp, in the station midway between the two worlds, uh, mm-hmm. and because what we discover is that there's a plot. Um, there's been an agreement between the, gov- the Earth government and the alien government. The alien government has a war they're fighting that they're losing. And so there's been an agreement made that the slums, all the slums, all the poor people on Earth will be um, uh, basically evacuated by the aliens to take part in their war. So, oh. so, it's basically, so it's an alien invasion, but it's only against the slums. It's only against the poor people. And right. so our characters have to break out of prison and come to Earth to warn them. And then once the war gets going and the and humans are losing uh, against these creatures, they have to go to the the alien prison that's here on Earth and break those those aliens out of the Guantanamo that these creatures have built for their own kind. So hmm. basically have their own kind fighting their masters. And so it's it's called Fugitive Space, and it's going to be a really fun show. So, <laughs> we'll,
1: have to, we'll have to keep an eye out for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Definitely.
2: oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really fun. It's really fun. Cool. So, uh, but yeah, so I'm you can tell i'm a kid i'm like a kid in a candy store yeah and and
1: yeah you just love this subject so much and and yes. that yeah that really comes through in your work mark and just who you are as a person too so that's yes. it's great it's great to meet a fellow sci-fi geek like me yes. so <laughs> but,
2: yeah. but, also, but also one thing i'll say that's also very liberating in my life at this point is because my audience has been financing me i don't talk about stuff that i want to do i talk about stuff that i'm doing and going mm. with. And and then it just becomes the logistics. I mean, one of the things that actually has aided my career hugely is I choose impossible projects and then I pull them off. I mean, when I was 21 years old, the idea of writing a book about the twi- Rod Serling and the twilight zone, if I would asked 100 people, I, I was an art major. I had a degree in painting, sculpture, and graphic arts. I'd never even taken a journalism course. And Carol Serling, Rod's widow, had already turned on major journalists who wanted to write about Rod in the twilight zone. So if I had asked 100 people what my chance of convincing Rod's widow uh to let me do a book on rod and the twilight zone 100 people would have said you have no chance but i but it's not a majority opinion it's my opinion you know and then Mm -hmm. i just pull it off so i i interviewed 30 people who'd worked on the show uh before i went to carol and if they if she had said no it would have been no but by then i'd spent three months talking to people i knew i knew what I, i i felt absolutely certain i could write the book and then she was able to call the people that i had um uh, interview that she personally knew and say what do you think about this kid and clearly they gave me a, a you know good report because she then said okay you've got access to everything and Excellent. uh and we, were, and we were off and running so you know but but i choose big projects and i you know and then i just you kind go of, for it
1: you go yeah, for it man yeah.
2: yeah well most most people are way too timid most people mm-hmm. the moment they meet opposition or any kind of see it's funny you know the mentors that i choose like guillermo and ray bradbury and um and Rod Serling, the thing I'm really interested in is when they hit uh, difficulties or rejection, what did they do and mm. how did they get around it? That's something I would talk to Ray about a lot and Guillermo. And and Serling, I mean, Serling wrote uh, four Twilight Zone pilots before he sold the show. He wrote one and it got shelved and then that was bought by another anthology show and it was popular and so CBS said, okay, write another one. He wrote that one. It, it didn't sell the show. He wrote another one. It didn't sell the show. Finally, the fourth one sold the show. And he what he was doing with each of those scripts was refining it and refining it and refining it, fine-tuning it to where it wouldn't be so peculiar that, that the buyers would be scared off. And, right. and if you ever watch the pilot, the pilot of the Twilights on the did sell the show, it's about a guy who finds himself in a small town with no people in it, and he has no memory mm-hmm. of who he is. And then at the, at the end, we discover he's an astronaut trainee, uh, you know, in an isolation booth to see yep. if he can handle the isolation on a, uh, on a future trip to the moon. That's an episode that actually has no fantasy element. That's something that could actually have taken place in objective reality. Right. Uh, but Rod needed to do that because the people who were buying the show were not science fiction fans. And so, uh, yeah. you know, uh, and so that's so he was he was really smart. And uh, but, you know, but that was determination. He wasn't going to let it go. He knew that he needed he needed a, a a place, his own space to create what he wanted to create because the censors right. censors had essentially driven him out of television. And he had to he had to have science fiction as a refuge to tell the stories he wanted to tell. He never intended to be a science fiction writer. That was not his dream. It was just the censorship in the 50s forced him to it. You know, so hmm. that's it's really interesting, you know.
1: Yeah, one way to get your show on the just like pretend it's this, but then like, okay. Wait, wait till you see the other episodes. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, you have to, you know, you have yeah. to, you have to be aware of the game you're in. And, right. you know, it's like, I, you ha- I mean, if you're going to take a hard road, if you're going to not go the way everyone else is marching, then you have to figure out what the path is, you know? And if you're going to be a, a trailblazer, you've got to blaze the trail. I mean, it's like, you know, with like with Space Command, I mean, it's taken longer than I would have liked to make all of this. But on, well, it's funny, when I was writing The Twilight Zone Companion, from the month I started, to the month the book came out, was five years. And while I was writing it, someone said, well, well why is it taking you so long? You know, other people are going to beat you to the punch. And I said, I'm taking this long because I want to do it right. <laughs> you know, It takes time to do it right, to get it mm-hmm. right. And, mm-hmm. and then the book came out, and the, per- the same person said, now I see what you're, why it was taking so long. Because I really, really, really did, did my job. And the book's been in print for close to 40 years because I did my job right, and, uh, you know, so that's, again, you know, I mean, you know, you have to take pride of workmanship, and you have to, uh, you know, if it's hard, it, it, see, from my vantage point, it doesn't matter if the job is easier or if it's hard. First of all, you bring your A game to whatever you do, whether it's Smurfs or Friday the 13th of the series or Space mm-hmm. Canal, but also, you, um, whether it's hard or easy is irrelevant. You're going to get to the finish line no matter what. If it's hard, it's hard. You just accept it, but you keep going. You know, so that's mm. the lesson I've taken from all these dear friends of mine.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the biggest thing I see in, in uh, with my age group is just that, like I was mentioning to you earlier, you know, people move out here to be a writer, a director, a producer, an actor. Yes. And they r- meet that first roadblock or you know, thing that's in their way, and then they just stop. Yeah. And they either mm-hmm. go back home or they pick they up, up, up some other type of job. Yeah, yeah they just give up.
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, it's funny because the um, that's why I started my roundtable all those years ago because I wanted people to have emotional support. In my roundtable, it's open to anyone who, who who's in film, TV, or books. Uh, there's no judgment of who's deserving, who has talent. You can be just off the the the, the bus from keokuk It doesn't matter. You know, we have Oscar winners and Emmy winners. One of our one of our Space Command uh, uh, crew guys just won an Oscar for the sound of metal, and he's a member of my roundtable. And you know, but again. Um, there's no arrogance. There's no uh, exclusiveness. I hate the arrogance of Hollywood. And, um, but in the new book, In Greenlighting Lighting Yourself, I deal with some subjects that I've never seen dealt with in books on how to have a career in Hollywood. I have one chapter on uh, recovering from failure. I have one chapter on um, building upon success. I have one chapter on working with stupid people you know and how to deal with them i say if you have a choice to not work with stupid people don't work with stupid people but if, yeah. you, but if you are if you are in a situation where someone in the hierarchy above you is stupid here's ways to deal with it without losing your job you know or compromising your art you know i mean because that's right. equally important and um you know i talk about how if you're working for yourself as an artist um how you wake up and your day stretches before you, how you can schedule your day and arrange your day so that you don't just binge watch TV all day and then wonder where the time Mm. went. You know, I mean, these are things that they tend not to talk about in books on how Mm. to have a career. And um, I talk about, you know, having a life. And I placed the chapter on having a life after after the chapter on failure and the chapter on success because I thought, because one thing I see in the book is, whether you're succeeding or failing at your art, you still have to have a life that's set yeah. from that, that's enriching, regardless. So that when you're in highs or lows, you still have a life that nurtures you and people mm-hmm. that, are, that are true friends and people who love you. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, so I'm really trying to create a book that really can yeah. be a tool for 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 everyone who um you know because again, it doesn't. I mean, what you discover is that the people at the top. Still have mentors. I mean, uh, Guillermo mm-hmm. del Toro's closest friend is, and mentor is James Cameron. J.J. Uh, Abrams' mentor was Steven Spielberg. I mean, you need someone to guide you, and and you know, because otherwise you're flying blind. And most yeah. And most of the common wisdom about how you have a career in Hollywood is total bullshit. You know, I like when people say all you need is a great script. Uh, <laughs> how many movies are great? How many TV shows are great? You know, it's like no, yeah. oh, a great script doesn't. How many things get made and you say. How on earth did that get made? Clearly, clearly there are tons. The majority of TV shows and movies don't have a great script. So somehow there's something else going on that gets those made when great scripts don't get made, right? right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or Mm -hmm. when they say, um, you know, life is like a river and will take you where you're meant to go. What I say to that is if you fell in a real river, would you believe that? (laughs) no (laughs) no, swim like hell for the shore you know that it's not wherever it's it's not where you necessarily you want to end up and um you know so so again it's about it's about um surround yourself with people who believe in you who love you you don't want yes men you want people who will tell you if you're headed for you know a bear trap you know or Mm -hmm. iceberg. Yeah. you know but but you need people who will be supportive of you who will be loving who will be there when whether it's fair or foul, you know, you need those real friends, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. but also you need to, you need to get on with your work. You know, I mean, Ray Bradbury wrote every, he wrote five days a week. He, his schedule was this, he'd wake up in the morning, he would write for several hours in the morning, at, then he'd have lunch, then he'd have a nap, and then he'd do business in the afternoons, evenings and weekends were first family. He did that for 70 mm. years, okay, like clockwork. Wow. And because, you yeah. know, so it's very interesting. You see um, that discipline as well as enthusiasm are what form the basis of a career, you know. And yes, and people and, 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 the, and anyone who comes here thinking it's going to be easy is uh, very quickly um, disabused of that. But the question is when you discover it's, I mean, here's the real, so, someone once said to me, when people say what they want, look at what they're actually doing and that will tell you what they actually want because most people are not committed to what they say they want, you know, when push comes to shove, they, you know, and and another thing I say in the book is do you want to live in the excuse or do you want to live in the action? You know, because from like, it's very interesting with this Kickstarter campaign, it was like, you know, there comes a point where you say, well, do I pull the plug or do I keep going? Do I double down? Do I increase what I'm doing? And for me, it's like, no, there's, there's, we're not, you know, I mean, we're going to succeed. And, and if and just, we just just have to be clever and we have to be inventive and, you know, it, you, you move forward. And, uh, you know, so that's that's what you do.
0: Yeah, and, and it's cool to hear you say that because we had Rob uh, Rob Paulson on uh, recently and he had basically the same type of message. You know, it, it's just that surround yourself with people that, you know, care about you and you care about, but also, you know, you, you got to keep going. Yeah. You, you know, you, you if you really, truly want to do something, then go for it. Yes, you know, don't make excuses for yourself.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's really the question is, what do you want to create? Yeah, and what do you want to stand for? I mean, one another thing I say sometimes is I'll say, your career will be defined by two points along a spectrum, what you stand for and what you won't stand for, you know, mm. and, and it's absolutely true. But first, you have to know what those are, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. And, and it's vital
1: figure out who you are. Yeah. yeah. And
2: again, you don't have to have all the answers. You, frequent, you you never will. But but the more you, like, the first step to find out what you want to create is to say, okay, what do I resonate to in other people's work? You know, whose work speaks to me? And mm. and then it's like, okay, let's see if those people, see, being here in Hollywood, you can, so many of the creative people come here when it's not a pandemic. Um, and you can meet them, you can hear them speak. And with the internet, of course, you can you know, hear people talk. Oh, any any time, any moment you want to. And and though meeting them in person is great, because frequently the official story isn't the real story. You know, it's like mm. there's, um, you know, how they got their their start or whatever. You know, no one's going to say, "Well, I gave a blowjob to somebody." You know, that's not going to be their 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 creation myth or whatever. You know, and 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 not to get into the into the Me Too generation, but I'm just saying, like one one person told me the way he got into uh, writing for for writing scripts was he was working as a bartender and a big A-list star came in with his drug dealer. And the next time that drug dealer came in alone, my friend said to him, well, can you get my script to that star? And the drug dealer said, well, no, he's, he's just going to burn it. I I can get it to someone better. And he did. And the guy bought the script and he was off and running. But the point is, is he going to say that story in an interview? Maybe not. And he (laughs) he also told me the name of that star. And I'm not going to mention the name of the star, but, you know again, it's like he certainly wouldn't have told the Dame of the Star in in print, and so, yeah. so, right so <laughs> so that's where we're getting to know people personally. You find out the real way things work, and that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's invaluable,
0: yeah, yeah well, Mark, we really appreciate your time tonight. thank you for giving me Definitely. giving us your evening uh, before we let you go, we do have a thing we like to do called the film five. So basically, it's five rapid fire questions. We'll do sci-fi edition <laughs> for Mr Sci-fi. Okay. Yes, so we're going to kick it off with number one, your favorite film in the last five years, not sci-fi, just favorite film. Wow. Um, yeah, I know, it's tough. I,
2: <laughs> I can't necessarily say what my favorite film is, the, uh, but The Martian, I thought The Martian was a terrific film. I, lo- I like Blade Runner 2049 for all of its flaws. Um, you know, I, beyond that, I'm sure there's a ton of other movies that I love, but those are the ones that immediately pop into my mind. So, yeah. Okay.
0: Now now if that was a struggle this one's going to be a a real a real fight. Uh favorite sci-fi film.
2: My favorite sci-fi film um it'd be a toss up probably between um 2001: A Space Odyssey and and Blade Runner probably. Okay. Um yeah. Yeah, probably Blade Runner.
0: Okay. Yeah. Your favorite sci-fi character.
2: My, my favorite sci-fi character. Huh. Well Ripley is a great character. I love I love Ripley and uh you know so that's uh that would probably be the one.
0: Okay. Uh, your favorite uh, current film that's out right now
2: uh, yeah. of the rare ones. Um, I just saw Greenland. You know, Greenland is a wonderful little little science fiction film about the end of the Earth. It's sort of the film that the deep impact in Armageddon should have been, but I really, really enjoyed it, I, and, it and the cast is terrific, and it really delivers. So for anyone who hasn't seen that film, it's about asteroids hitting the Earth, and it's uh, great fun, great fun.
0: Okay. And then the favorite project you've ever written on? Wrote for it, it. Well,
2: so what I'm doing now is my favorite project. You know, Space Command and the Showrunners Network. I mean, I'm a happy camper. Um, I mean, I, you know, I grew up really wanting to work on Star Trek. So when I fin- finally sold to Star Trek, what happened with Star Trek is when the next Star Trek Next Generation started up, I pitched every single time I would pitch, the producer who I pitched to would want to buy one or more of the stories I pitched and then be fired before they could buy it. And this happened over a two-year period. It was David Gerald, Tracy Torme, on and on, Bert Armus and uh finally someone stayed there and was able to actually buy the story that he liked and uh and that was michael pillar but but man yeah but star trek was was a big big uh coup for me yeah wow
0: all right and then one more thing before we let you go last thing Uh, you've mentioned many projects you have in the works right now is there any that you didn't mention or anything you you know you really want to talk about that you can talk about at this time?
2: I mean the main thing I would say is if it uh go to my Mr. Sci Fi YouTube channel, Mr. It's SCI hyphen fi, Mr. Sci-Fi. And uh and the first hour of I've just posted the first hour of Space Command. We're about to have a sneak preview of 10 minutes of the second hour, which will be really amazing. Uh we'll do that probably by tomorrow or the next day. Um and then go to our Kickstarter campaign and throw some money our way that'll be much appreciated space command com.
0: sounds great everybody go check out mr sci-fi on youtube mark zickrey thank you so much for being here the writer director so much, producer mark.
2: creator of
0: space command and so many other sci-fi projects we appreciate <laughs> oh, yeah. you for being here
2: it's, it's been great i've really enjoyed it <laughs> yes. guys and uh, and best of luck with everything
0: thank you so much mark have cool. a great thank evening. you so much mark take
2: care, take care man
0: If you like this episode, make sure to follow us on social media at Film Detectives for further news and upcoming shows. Join us next week as we explore filmmakers from around the world.